Well, as Pastor Nathan mentioned, today begins a focus on marriage, but not uh, to set any of us up for uh, the thing that we're all guilty of. You know, we hear sermons and so many times those of us who are in Christ and for good reason think, man, I wish so-and-so were here or man, that really applies to such and such person. And for those of us who are unmarried or not yet married or whatever your station of life is, I want to just say that the person in view in today's sermon and the one who performed the extraordinary miracle was himself not married. (laughs) And we all have much to glean from the significance of today's theme, marriage and the majesty of the mediator. In fact, for those of us who are, who are in Christ, young or old, married or unmarried, we are all betrothed to another. And there is a wedding coming that we will all participate in and celebrate in for all eternity. Today's sermon text is found in John chapter 2, and it does begin at least a week-long focus here at Grace Church on marriage. But really, we want to look through that prism through that window, into the face of the Redeemer, and we want to see his majesty, which is precisely what happened in John chapter 2. Next week's sermon, as has already been mentioned, will focus on the practical applications of marriage. So today we want to deal mainly with the doctrinal foundation. We want to be reminded about what marriage really is and what it is really about. And as we get that theological foundation, that God rock-solid foundation, what he has designed marriage to be and what he has designed marriage for, then we'll all, I trust, be able to glean some really solid beneficial applications, which we'll talk about in great detail next Sunday, Lord willing. And you'll remember that between today and next Sunday, again, God willing, we will have an opportunity for many of us here in the body to participate in the Friday evening and Saturday morning and afternoon seminar dedicated to these same themes. Well, with that in mind, I invite you to fill your heart with prayer as you hear John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm reading from the New American Standard, if yours might be a little different. Hear the word of the living God. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. Verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. Verse 5. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, verse 7, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it came from, parentheses, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
the head waiter called the bridegroom, verse 10, and said to him, every man serves the good wine first. And when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples believed in him. Three things about the context of this passage. I just want you to pay attention to, to set the stage for the things that we want to see in it. And then we'll ask God's blessing to do more than we would be able to see and to understand in our own power. The context things are first, the title of the sermon, marriage and the majesty of the mediator come right out of verse 11. My translation says he manifested his glory. And of course he did that. If you look at verses one and two at a wedding ceremony or at the celebration of a wedding. So we're here looking at the majesty of Christ being manifest, and that majesty is being manifest at a wedding ceremony. Second, the passage begins in verse 1. This is just context things to get us all on the same page and know what we're looking at and what we're dealing with. It says in verse 1, on the third day. Now that's significant. Scholars would disagree about the particular day of the week that might be in view. Was it a Tuesday? Was it a Saturday? Well, we may not be able to know that precisely, though there's some pretty good reasons to guess one or the other. But it does seem that really smart, scholarly, godly people like D.A. Carson got it right when when they show that what we have here in John chapter 2 is the end of the first week of Jesus' public ministry. Let's just put it together. Chapter 1, verse 29, the next day. So there's two days. You got one, then the next one. Chapter 1, verse 35, again the next day. So now we know we're talking about three days. And verse 43 of chapter 1, the next day. Well, now we're up to four days. And then chapter 2, verse 1, the third day. So you had three to that, it's seven days. The reason that is very significant is because of the similarities between the Gospel of John and the book of Genesis Surprise, surprise, it's not a surprise while we read from Genesis, the creation account, when God made man and woman in his own image, and in chapter 2 said, the man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall be called one flesh. That happened on the sixth day, and the seventh day God rested from all his works. Here, the creator of the universe, wrapped in human flesh, at the end of the first week of his public ministry, is performing his very first miracle at a wedding. The similarities just cannot be coincidental. The first wedding on planet Earth between man and woman, Adam and Eve, and the first miracle of the Lord Jesus, both happening in, if you will, a creation narrative. He is doing something great for his glory, and that's a contextual mark that you'll want to keep in mind. That the Lord Jesus who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, and yes, the Lord Jesus created the heavens and the earth out of nothing. Colossians 1 tells us that he's the creator of all things visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, everything has been created by Jesus. And in no other book than the Gospel of John, we find similar language to Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Genesis 1.1. John 1.1. 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through Him. And apart from Him, John 1, 3, nothing came into being that has come into being. So you can see that the Lord Jesus, who created the heavens and the earth out of nothing, here at a wedding, is again creating and displaying, as verse 11 says, His glory. So those are two contextual marks. The title of the sermon comes from the fact we're at a wedding and Jesus is revealing His majesty. Second, we're dealing with a seven-day week, the Creator again displaying his wonder and his brilliance and his glory. And then the third contextual mark says to us very clearly in verse 11, this beginning of his signs, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee. Everybody agrees, who reads their Bible carefully, this is the first miracle that Jesus performed. He's roughly 30 years old. He's beginning his public ministry, which would last three and a half years, and this is the first miracle, public display that he is the Messiah, the mediator between God and men. This is his first miracle. Well, that's significant because the Gospel of John is really built around the signs that Jesus performed. This is the first sign. There are six more for a total of seven signs that Jesus performs. Really miraculous things, intervention of the supernatural hand of God into the natural order of human history. Here in John chapter 2, we get the first sign, water to wine. We get in the very next passage, starting in verse 13, the cleansing of the temple where Jesus uh, displays again his power and glory. But if you go over into chapter 4, you let your eyes fall on the end of that, verses 40, 44 and following. 46 and following, Jesus heals a nobleman's son. Again, if you'll look at 46 of chapter 4, he does so in Cana of Galilee. If you skip over to chapter 5, you'll see in verses 1 to 15 that the Lord Jesus performs another amazing miracle, a man who had been lame. We even know how long. Let your eyes fall on chapter 5 and verse... Five, 38 years, Jesus healed that man. Over in chapter 6, verses 1 to 15, 5,000 people are fed with just a small lunch that belonged to one boy. Chapter 9, we find Jesus spitting on the ground and rubbing that spittle in a blind man's eyes. And, of course, he sees. And in chapter 11, these signs, which increase in their intensity, chapter 11 Jesus performs the sign that many would call the greatest. That is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So John's clearly out on a mission. He's showing that Jesus is the creator of the universe and he has power to do the miraculous. And seven times we see that fact unfold. Now, we just heard that Jesus fed 5,000 men, not counting women and children, 25, 30,000 people at least, with one boy's lunch. And we just heard that Jesus raised a man from the dead. If that would not cause you to believe in him, I'm not sure what would. <laughs> so don't hear these things stoically and, oh, yeah, yeah, I've thought about that before. Enter again into the scenario 
where the God of history has stepped into time, the one who created you, and you're standing face to face with him, well, if you believe that on the basis of these signs, then yours would be the response of verse 11 of our text. Then his disciples believed in him. They entrusted themselves to him when they saw his glory. You see, those seven signs were really that. They were signs. Just like when you're traveling down a road, if you read through the Gospel of John, you're traveling down a road. He's taking you somewhere. In fact, at the end of the Gospel of John, John says very clearly where he's been taking you. And all the signs are leading you to a very intentional destination. John 20, 31. John says of his whole Gospel, these things have been written so that you may believe in Jesus, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. He wants you to believe. He wants, verse 11 of our text, to happen to you. He wants you to see the supernatural power of Christ and join the disciples in believing when God raises people from the dead, which, by the way, the Pharisees said when Jesus raised Lazarus, oh no, essentially our plan is not working. The whole world is going after him. Well, yeah, he just raised the guy from the dead. But that itself is a sign pointing to a greater miracle. The end of the Gospel of John takes us to the empty tomb of Jesus who three days prior had been crucified, dead, and buried and raised again to life forevermore, proving that he has the power over sin, death, Satan, and hell, and he's the king of the universe and the only savior of mankind. Well, today to deal with John chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, and to look at the combination between human marriage and the majesty of the mediator, I want us to try to see what happened. I want you to truly try to envision it. I don't have the most vivid imagination, but I'm a picture guy. I'm, I'm, I'm certainly one of those who believes the picture is, in fact, worth a thousand words and probably many thousands more than that. Now, I've not been, I'm not the most uh, well-refined fella. I hadn't been to a lot of these fancy, schmancy, expensive plays and Broadway productions. I have been to the Orpheum a time or two. And just to show you how unrefined I am, one of the favorite things I've ever seen there was uh, the presentation of Stomp where they take trash cans and uh, signs and broomsticks and matchboxes, and they make all kind of cool noises, and that was pretty fancy. But I've seen a couple of others where the Broadway uh, professional people make their tours, and they show up in Memphis, and it's an amazing thing. In John chapter 2, I want you to see it, and it's really set up in two acts. Every, every you know, thorough drama has multiple acts, and in every act you may have multiple scenes. But John chapter 2, verses 1 to 11, is really set up in two acts. And each of those two acts have two scenes. Act 1, scene 1. Act 1, scene 2. Act 2, scene 1. Act 2, scene 2. I want you to see it. I want you to watch it unfold. You're not sitting in an auditorium in midtown Memphis. You're in Cana of Galilee, and you're at a wedding celebration. Act 1, scene 1. On the stage are Jesus, 
his mother, his disciples, and a whole bunch of people celebrating a wedding ceremony. Verses 1 and 2, Act 1, Scene 1. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. I just want you to pause there. That's Act 1, Scene 1. There's a lot of people. It's a wedding celebration. But while all these people are milling around, they freeze, the lights go low, and the spotlight hits a few people, Mary, Jesus, and his disciples. And we find out a significant detail that they were invited to this wedding. So these are people that Jesus and Mary and his disciples knew. These are his friends. We don't know the name of the bride or the groom, but we know that Mary and Jesus sometime prior to this day got in their mailbox the save the date card, and then sometime after that they got the nice handwritten calligraphy invitation in the mail, and then we know that they also showed up on this day and they signed the guest book. Envision them. Now I've already told you that there's some significant comparisons between the gospel of John and the first book of the Bible, Genesis. And those obvious similarities should not be overlooked by us, but they should also land on us. I've told you that the God who created the heavens and the earth is standing at this wedding. He's showing up there, yes, because he was invited, verse 2, and because his mom was with him and she knew the wedding party, yes, but he's there because he's trying to display something about his glory. For 30 years, he's lived in obscurity, knowing in, I believe, progressive thoroughness from Scripture that he is the one mediator between God and man. And now, at the Father's bidding, it's time for him to begin to display to the whole world that he, that he is, in fact, the only Savior of sinful men. So, Genesis 1, John 1, here's the Creator. Genesis 2, John 2, the same Jesus is showing up at another wedding. This time, not between Adam and Eve, but between two sin-torn individuals, one man and one woman, who are infected with Adam's curse, but there stands the second Adam, and the spotlight falls squarely on him, not on them. Now, something wonderful happens as we progress through this drama. And the wonderful thing is that the spotlight really never shines on the human couple that are experiencing this joyous day of their wedding. But they're actually, we can infer, happy that the spotlight falls on another. And this is why we're taking two Sundays and the weekend in between to focus on marriage and what God's intentions for it are and how practically we should walk forward day by day in obedience to God and in the bigger sense to understand as God's people that we are betrothed to another and that we owe Him full allegiance. The most important wedding in this drama, the most important person, pardon me, in this drama at this wedding was the man Jesus, the second Adam, the one who came and not by any accident, at a wedding, performed his first public sign that he is the God-man, the Redeemer. He draws the attention of our souls to his face. It doesn't surprise us that at a 
wedding celebration that Jesus began to manifest his glory. I love the way John Calvin puts it. You guys have heard statements like this before. It is a high honor given to marriage that Christ not only deigned to be present at the nuptial banquet, but that he also honored it with his first miracle. The curtain is open. Act one, scene one. Jesus, Mary, his disciples are invited to the wedding. The lights go dim. The curtain doesn't close. It's act one, scene two. The shift, the focus shifts. The light now falls on Mary. And then the other spotlight on Jesus. And everyone else is frozen in place. And you can see their silhouette. And there's the bride in all of her splendor. But she's hidden in obscurity because the focal point now is on Mary, the mother of Jesus, and her son, our Savior. There's two comments that happen, first from Mary to Jesus and then from Jesus to Mary. Mary says one thing, Jesus says two things. The spotlight's now on Mary. Verse 3. Does this seem like just a simple little statement? At first reading, yes. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Can you watch her face? Can you read her lips? Can you see her point over there? Can you see her motion to all the people who are standing around? They have no wine. Seems like a pretty innocent and obvious observation. Mary's saying to Jesus, there's some pots there. There's six of those pots. They're all empty. All the wine is gone. And then Jesus comments. She freezes. The light falls on him. He begins to speak, and he says two things. Now, the two things he says would make no sense unless we see them in the broader context of the Gospel of John, indeed, the context of the whole of Scripture. Comment number one. Kids, is this the way you talk to your mom? Woman, what does that have to do with us? Note to self, kids, that's not the way you should respond to your mom, and that's not the tone that Jesus used. When Jesus said, woman, what does that have to do with us? He was not disrespecting her. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus refers to Mary again exactly that way. It's when he's hanging on the cross, and John, who wrote this book, is standing beside Mary's side, and Jesus says to her, woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. The word woman in Jesus' day was like the word ma'am of our day. Or in a more refined culture, my lady. Ma'am, what does that have to do with us? There's something impregnated here in Jesus' comment that we want to dig into in this scene before we move on to the next act and we catch it in Jesus' next statement. Jesus was not being disrespectful. In fact, he was honoring her, but he was specifying who was in charge. It wasn't Mary. It was the Father whose will Jesus had come to do. And that becomes very clear in the second half of verse 4. Mary has said they have no wine. Jesus has said, woman, what does that have to do with us? And now the last part of scene 2, act 1, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. You see that in verse 4? Woman, what does that have to do with us? 
my hour has not yet come. That sounds like a pretty strange response to they're out of wine. Well, now we're really getting somewhere. In John's gospel, when Jesus says something about his hour or his time, it's one of the most important phrases in the narrative of the whole book of the gospel of John. R.C. Sproul says it simply, clearly, and very well. As we move through the gospel of John, Sproul writes, we will see Jesus referencing his coming hour again and again. Sometimes he referred to the hour of his passion. That's the last week of his life before he was crucified. Sometimes he referred to the hour of his passion when he was to be given over to be crucified, but even those references went beyond the cross to the resurrection. And he talked about the hour in which the Father would manifest his glory. Mary knew, in a sense, that at some point Jesus' glory would be manifested and Jesus lived his whole life under the burden of that hour, the hour of death. So R.C. Sproul and a whole bunch of other godly and righteous people who love God and his word have all agreed that Jesus is talking about the cross. So do you see the scene? All the people are frozen. It's a big party. And that day, wedding celebrations went on not for an hour or two like we do at receptions on a Saturday afternoon, but they went on for days, perhaps even a week. And all these people have come from far and wide to Cana of Galilee to rejoice with this couple and all the lights are dim, and Mary's saying they don't have wine, and Jesus is responding, yes, ma'am, but it's not my hour yet. As I said a moment ago, now we're starting to get somewhere. Before we go all the way there, let's just let the text take us there. The curtain closes. The stage shifts around just a little bit. The curtain reopens, everything's dark, and a light falls on six stone water pots. I'm in verse 5. Mary said to the servants, verse 5, whatever he says to you, do it. On stage, in bright light, are Mary, servants, and water pots. And Jesus is standing by, and Mary is no longer talking to Jesus, but she's now talking to the servants who had come to the wedding to be of help. And I love this line. Never has better counsel been uttered in the history of the world than what Mary said to these servants, and oh, how I have, how I have prayed that it would be like a dart from heaven into every soul that's gathered here now. Whatever he says to you, do it. Sproul again said, no one ever received better instructions from anybody in all of history than these servants received from the mother, mother of Christ when she told them to follow Jesus' orders. How is it with you and the commands of Christ? Verse 6 carries on this scene 1 of Act 2. And Mary has instructed the servants to obey the orders of Christ we find out in verse 6 how many pots there are and how large they are and what their purpose was originally intended for. Look with me in verse 6. There were six stone water pots. 
just pause there. It's the custom of that day, and it's still the custom today in many third world countries and primitive cultures to use clay pots. Many of you have been many places in the world that are behind us in technological advance, and clay pots are all over the place. And that was the case even in this day in Jesus' time. But the Jews were known to use stone water pots for the purification rituals because they didn't want the mud to mix with the water. So these are six stone water pots. How big are they? Verse 6. Containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Now, if you saw the real drama unfold on a real stage, you would see now not some very small pots, but some very big, very heavy pots. They're made out of stone, and if they're all full to the brim, they're very heavy, not to mention how heavy they would be even empty. We also know that these pots were used for the tradition of Jewish purification. So I've tried to do some quantification, and I'm going to use a prop to help me here since we're talking dramas and skits. This is my very impressive home garbage can. It says on the sticker on the side that it contains 13.2 gallons. How many gallons are these stone water pots? 20 to 30 each. So that means 9 to 14 of these... Nine to 14 of these lining up across the front of the stage, all bone dry. And Jesus tells them in verse 7 what they're to fill the pots with, and we're told how full they filled them. Verse 7, Jesus said to them, fill the water pots with water. So they filled them up to the brim. Now do you see it? Nine to 14 of these, or six stone Pots of these full to the brim with water. Lights go dim. People reshuffle just a little bit. The final act, act two, the final scene, scene two. The light falls on the servants, on the head waiter, and for the first time, the guy getting married the bridegroom. Again, notice that these uh, these pots were for purification in verse 6, and I love this. This is where stuff starts to get very, very real. (laughs) There was no verse anywhere in the whole Bible that called for 180 gallons of water to purify people when they come to a wedding. The Jews, as they were known to do, had added all sorts of their own devices and quirks to God's word and to God's way, trying to be above and beyond, if we want to put their motives in the best light. And Jesus used their man-made excess, six stone water pots, to show them his power to purify people, not from the outside. When we were in India, we went to a wedding, and uh, there were big pots, and the servant people did dip in their silver cup, and they did walk around to every person before the meal, and they did pour the water over your hands, and you did try to rinse them off in the water, and they were doing something like that. But Jesus used their purification pots that God himself had never sanctioned to fill them with something that would purify them from the inside out, not only on the external. So go with me here. We're in the last scene of the last act. When Jesus had said in verse 4, my hour has not yet come, that would be very strange, unless, of course, what happened next happened next. 
I want you to think about the process of what happens beginning in verse 7. Jesus said to them, fill the pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water, which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, but the servants who drew out the water knew, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Everybody, everybody serves the good stuff first. Uh, And then when the people have drunk freely, that means probably had too much, then they serve the poorer wine. When their palate is no longer so sensitive to the refined delicacies of all the wine and its age, then people bring out the poor stuff. But you saved the good wine, verse 10, until now. So I did a little bit of research this week and Kids, I'm not encouraging you to try this at home, but I'm going to tell you the five-step process for how wine is made. This comes from winefolly.com. Number one, pick the grapes. Number two, crush the grapes. Number three, ferment the grapes into wine. Number four, age the wine. Number five, bottle the wine. You remember number two? Crush the grapes. You see, in this sign, this doesn't happen in all the other signs. It does happen in some of them. But in this sign, something doesn't happen. Jesus doesn't speak to the water and tell it what to do. He doesn't, as far as we're told in the text, bow his head in prayer and ask the Father to do some miraculous thing like he had done at the feeding of the 5,000. Here, he simply wills it and it's done. You see, in the normal process, unless you're Jesus, to get wine, you got to have some grapes and you got to crush them. And there's very vivid pictures of that in the Old Testament. The least, uh, some of the most vivid of them being in places like the servant songs and the messianic passages of Isaiah that talk about the coming Messiah when God is going to tread down the wine press of his fury in his anger, and we find that that very crushing power, the winepress of the fury of God, the grapes being crushed, which we find in Isaiah 65, are actually sinful people who deserve that wrath. But Isaiah 53 tells us the Father was pleased to crush him instead of us, that he would bear our iniquities. By his suffering, we would be made whole and clean and pure. You see in this illustration, when Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, when Mary says they're out of wine, she's not just saying they're out of wine. How many times might they have talked? I'm not suggesting this is what the passage teaches, but I am using sanctified speculation. Because you remember when Jesus was eight days old and his mother and father had taken him into the temple and Simeon took little eight-day-old Jesus into his arms and he made some very powerful prophetic utterances about that baby? being the Savior of the world, quote, mine eyes have seen your salvation. And then in his prophetic utterances, Simeon also said things to Mary, like this baby is appointed for the fall and the rise of nations and a sword will even pierce your own soul. She understood something devastating was going to happen to that little eight-day-old baby boy at some point. And for these previous 30 years leading up to this wedding day, might 
Jesus and Mary have possibly talked at some point about those messianic prophecies and about what Simeon was talking about, about Mary's soul being pierced. And might Jesus have said to Mary as they sat at the kitchen table and he was plucking grapes off the vine and putting them in his mouth, there's coming a day when God's going to make wine and he's going to crush somebody in the place of sinners for the salvation of the world. And when they're out of wine, might Mary, maybe, I'm not again saying that's certainly what the text is teaching, but might Mary have been saying to Jesus, they don't have any wine. And when Jesus turns and looks at his mom and says, ma'am, my hour hadn't come yet. And when the head waiter takes his cup and he dips it down into a cram full 180 gallon supply of six pots of pure, refined, best Bordeaux, France Valley wine and takes it to the groom. Maybe, just maybe, Jesus is showing us a picture of something glorious he's going to do one day. And he's not going to skip step two when that day comes. Friends, I want you to behold the gospel. I want you to think about the glorious day when God would crush the grape, if you will, for the purest of pure wines, for the most aged, refined, the plan that in fact was developed in eternity past for the salvation of your soul, when God would take the choicest of the fruit of the vine when God would take his own beloved son, the second person of the Trinity, heaven's favorite, and he would pluck him off that vine and send him down into time so that you one day could show up at a wedding feast and drink from his fullness. The Lord Jesus Christ is here giving us a son. That's what verse 11 says. Pointing us somewhere. This isn't the finishing point. This is a marker along the road so that when you get there, you will be able to look back and say, he brought me all the way and he bought me all the way. For application, I want you to think about four aspects that would come right out of the drama that we just beheld. Number one, you should be very jealous to always be inviting Jesus into the most significant place of your life. Here's two people getting married, and verse 2 tells us they invite Jesus there. It's a significant day for them, and they want Christ there. But I'm saying to you, why would we not always be inviting Jesus into the most significant place of our life? Because when Jesus is there and he senses any need among us, he's ready to, to draw deep down into the reservoir of his fullness and meet every need that we have. These people had invited him to their wedding. And you should invite him to the center of your soul, into the throne of your heart, to the most significant moments of your life, everything that you cherish most, everything that you most desire, all the biggest aspirations you could ever hope for. You should say, Christ, I want you right in the middle of that. And I want every need that you find there to be met by your sufficiency and power. I want you to note that they filled the pots all the way to the top. 
They didn't have any room left for anybody else to take any credit for what God had done. Jesus didn't want there to be any speculation about how the wine was made. And some of us, I feel, are probably living in that position where maybe two-thirds of the way or maybe three-quarters of the way, we're going to do what Jesus says. I filled the pots with water, Jesus. But you're leaving a quarter or a third of the room for you to put in some other stuff. Why don't you just take Mary's words as your own? Do whatever he says. Invite him to the most significant place of your life. And for a second application, realize that the work that Jesus does on your behalf in your life is never intended to end with you. Do you think Jesus made 180-ish gallons of wine for the bride and the groom alone to enjoy? No way. If you hadn't realized it yet, that's a lot of wine. One scholar said that's probably, for those of you who are refined and wine-drinking people, 2,400 heavy pours could have come out of those jars. I'm with pretty much every recognizable name in church history who's read this passage and says this was grade A, good stuff, real, legit, fermented, get you drunk if you have too much of it, wine. And Jesus who made it into wine is the same one who would teach us about sobriety and about temperance and who would inspire by the Holy Spirit words from the Apostle Paul that would tell us not to be drunk. Why would he make so much? It's the same way with every work of God, every true work of God in our life. When God shows up in you, when God shows up for you, when God meets a need on your behalf, when God meets your greatest need, the salvation of your soul, the forgiveness of your sins, your reconciliation with God, he never intends to end with you. He does more in you than can be contained by you. And if you were to keep it all for yourself, you would be living in opposition to the purpose for which he worked. He blesses us, as he said to Abraham, to be a blessing. So the second application is realize that when Jesus does all this work in us by his grace and for his glory that required him to be crushed for us to taste the fruit of that vine, of God's mercy, he does it so that we can be a blessing to so many, many others. That's why we say here, we exist to glorify God. How are we going to do that? By treasuring his son. What else will we do? Spread his eternal joy. He wasn't finished when he got to you. And marriages that know that are really poised for substantial blessing. Well, the third application, marriage, as the title of the sermon says, we're finally getting there, is about the majesty of the mediator. Remember the Calvin quote, it's a high honor given to marriage that Christ not only deigned to be present at the nuptial banquet, but that he honored it with his first miracle. See, here's the reality. We live in strange days, but they're really no different than any other era in human history. The sin that is prevalent in our time, in our day, in our land, in our culture isn't novel. It's just a repeat of old sins that manifested themselves in a hundred ways in times gone by. But the fact is that culture and climate and tolerance and temperance, according to any standard less than God's, will never lead us down the path of real satisfaction. 
Marriage is God's institution. He's the creator of it. He's the designer of it. And it was God who said that marriage shall be between one man and one woman for one life. And when the Apostle Paul thinks about that passage that we read from Genesis chapter 2, the man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and the two shall be made one flesh. Paul cites that passage, that passage, Genesis chapter 2, before sin entered the world and said, this is with reference, Ephesians 5, to Christ and the church. Marriage is supposed to display something. To love your spouse best, you cannot love your spouse first. And when this wedding in Cana of Galilee finally had Jesus of Nazareth at center stage under the spotlight displaying his glory, then that marriage, whose names we don't even know, was finally full of the significance that God wanted it to have. It's good news that your family should not revolve around your spouse and all the husbands and wives said amen And it's better news that your family shouldn't revolve around your children and all the parents said amen. And it's even better news that your family should revolve around another person whose name is Jesus. Marriage is about the majesty of the mediator. Just like in John chapter 2, Jesus loves today to still display his glory and his power through the simple institution of human marriage. But even every marriage, we can say with, I think, greater force, is really about the majesty of Christ. And this isn't just preachy talk, because every marriage, even the ones that last till death do us part, every marriage is temporary. Nobody's going to be married in heaven. So for any who feel like uh, the, the culture has won in selling the bill of goods that unmarried adults are for some reason second-class citizens in earth and in God's kingdom, fie on that. The Apostle Paul, the greatest missionary himself, was never married, and Jesus our Lord, his Savior and ours, was also never married. Marriage doesn't define us. Our identity is wrapped up in another. And Jesus is so magnificent that no no one will be married in heaven, everyone who's there will be absolutely, infinitely satisfied. How full must Christ be when Revelation 19.9 becomes our portion, when we all make it by the grace of Christ who was crushed on our behalf to the marriage supper of the Lamb? Marriage really is about a greater marriage that is to come, and ours should aim to display that. Well, finally, by application, just do what Jesus says and watch him work. Now, if you've been around this church long enough, it's only nine years old, but man, we've got more than nine years worth of our challenges and issues. And Satan's had his laser beam and his target on the members of this church since, I'm sure, before the day we were constituted back in 2006. But one of the ways the enemy's loving to attack today is to come hard and heavy after marriages and to create all kind of turmoil. And we're not going to pawn it all off on the devil. Oh, the devil made me do it. It's our own sin nature, no doubt about it. And there are a lot of challenges going on today in marriages. So if you're not yet married or you're one of our uh, adults who isn't married, whatever the case is, I'm appealing to this church as a pastor 
who's coming at this with a heart full of prayer, I'm asking that every person, young and old, boy, girl, man, woman, married or not, begin to long and pray for every marriage in this church to thrive. So one way that uh, college age students could help serve other marriages is you go keep some kids so that they can get out for a night and seek the Lord and pray together. And you older couples who've walked with Jesus and with each other in marriages for a long time, make it your ambition to pray for and invest in the younger marriages among us. But the fourth and final application point is simply just, let's just do what Jesus says and let's watch him work. Jesus said, fill the pots with water. So they filled the pots with water. They probably didn't understand everything that was about to happen. They couldn't have envisioned what he was about to do, but they obeyed him. And they left no room for anybody else to put any stuff in those pots. They just did what he said, and they did what he said all the way to the top. So if you're out there and you're thinking, man, if you only knew how Satan was attacking some marriages in this church, you would really be in your prayer closet. I'm not trying to be Job's friends and say every one of your troubles are directly owing to some sin that you've committed, but maybe it is possible that you're only putting three-fourths of Jesus' instructions into your pot. And you're putting another quarter of your own stuff into that pot. I don't know. But I am saying just fill the pot. Just do whatever he says. Like, humble yourself. If your marriage is in turmoil, do what Jesus prescribes. Fill the pot of your life and your marriage with prayer and real humility and real contrition and real James 5, confession of your sin to one another and real extending of forgiveness to each other, and real asking for your spouse's help, who knows you better probably than you know yourself, and sees weaknesses and cracks in your armor better than you see them. Let love control your tongue and how you respond and what you ask for. Lean into your spouse. Fill your pot. That's what I'm saying. And if you're like, I've tried that. Well, there's six pots. So just keep filling them up and keep doing what Jesus says, and he works. He works on the authority of his word. Fill your pot with this. Consider one another as more important than yourself. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, Philippians 2, but look out for the interests of one another. And watch the Lord Jesus Christ do what he's promised to do and what the Psalms would say he's never failed to do. That is, watch him fill stone water pots called your marriage with the sweetest of wine. Now, look, I'm not trying to be pep rally or overly optimistic, but I do have a biblically informed question. Why can't your marriage flourish? Why? Why can't every marriage in this church flourish? Why not? Is there anything standing between us and the miraculous power of Jesus to do all that he loves to do to display his glory in our hearts and our homes? And for those who are not married, why can't you be part of the arsenal that God is using to cause the marriages of Grace Church to flourish? I love that little word in verse 9. The water had become wine. Constitutional alteration of its chemical composition. It became what it was not. Why can't your marriage flourish? It can. Can't the same Jesus by the will of his power, 
the power of his will, just determine that it be so. Of course he can. Just fill the pot, do what he says, and watch him work. And when wine comes up out of that pot, and when our marriages flourish, and we don't even see all that he's doing, but others benefit because of the overflow of grace and the crumbs that fall from our tables, there won't be any room for suspicion about whose power has been at work in us. I don't think those servants ran around at that wedding in any one of those acts or any one of those scenes boasting about how good they were at putting water in pots. But everybody, six pots full, 2,400 glasses of wine. We're not celebrating for a week. Everybody cancel your plans. We're camping out for a month. Jesus is powerful. They were bragging on him. There's no indication in the text that the bride and groom were wealthy. In fact, they were probably precisely the opposite because they did run out of wine. So I want you to see that the luxury of our marriages is not measured by our bank accounts, by our debit cards, by our check stubs, by the degree of anything else other than the beauty of Christ. Wasn't that wedding beautiful when Jesus became center stage? Can he restore your marriage? Can he turn any marriage in our church into a marketplace to manifest his majesty? Why can't he? Would you put your life, married or not, into that purification pot? Would you ask him not just to change stuff around you or to bless you in some external way, but get your life and put it down in that pot and ask him to fill you to the brim with his gospel power? Jesus didn't make all the wine for the bride and for the groom, but to be shared by all. And we all need to benefit from the strength of grace that flows into every heart and every home of every member of this church, adult and child included. So in a moment, we're going to aim at praying for the marriages and praying that God would work in power. We'll try to do it uh, always at the Spirit's leading, but today I want to prompt you Today we want to pray for people. And we don't know what's going on in each other's lives and we don't need to pray, you know, uh, tell-all prayers if we do know something. But in a few moments, we will take a moment to pray for each other. We'll pray generally, Lord, bless our marriages, but God's going to put somebody on your heart. And we want you to rise to your feet and we want you to pray for that person or for that couple or for that young person who's not yet married and their future spouse that they'd walk with Jesus. You get the drift. What we want is wine out of water. What we want is the power and the majesty of Jesus to show up where Jesus loves to show up with his power and majesty. What we want is a church full of humble-hearted people who are crying out incessantly, fill me, Jesus, to the top, Jesus, the grace of the gospel in me, Jesus. Verse 11 says, when Jesus had done this, the disciples believed. <laughs> That's the great aim of all the signs, that we would believe, that we would believe. Revelation 19.9, blessed will they be in that day who are called to the marriage supper of the Lamb. J.C. Ryle said there's a greater marriage feast than that in Cana. 
And one day it will be held when Christ himself will be the bridegroom and believers will be the bride. A great glory will one day be manifested when Jesus shall take to himself his great power and his great reign with all of his people. Oh, that our marriages would be aiming at that great day. There's a final act in the drama, and for time's sake, I'll just abbreviate. In my sanctified imagination, I envision this couple speeding down the road in their shoe-polish-windowed car with cans off the back that the groomsmen had pranked them with, and they're just flying 90 to nothing. They're laughing all the way, and they're saying, Did you see that? Did you see what he did for us? Even on their wedding day, they're not talking about themselves. Christ at the beginning and no doubt through the duration of this union was the focal point. Jesus had rescued this couple and he had made them a showcase for his glory and for his power. Christ's presence and blessing is the essential ingredient to a happy marriage, period. Let's pray together. Father, you know the limitations on the times that we set. So we ask that as we seek your face now in prayer, that you would help us to cry out to you from hearts of humility and by the leading of the Holy Spirit to pray God-sized prayers for our friends, our family, our loved ones, for the kids among us that for your sake our marriages would be a showcase for the majesty of your son. 